0: I'd you to take a Bible and turn in the New Testament to the book of 1 Corinthians. These Bibles in the pews, that's page 952, as I continue a series of sermons from 1 Corinthians. Now next week, Dr. Rick Canada and John Sowell, the president of Reformed Seminary in Atlanta, will be here with us. Then, Lord willing, we'll return the Sunday after that to 1 Corinthians. Before I read that, I'd, I'd like to just make a few personal comments about this anniversary date of 9-11 being 15 years ago. In the uh, the summer, the late summer of 2001, I audited a uh, class at Reform Seminary in Orlando with Dr. Lyle Schaller. Now, although Dr. Schaller died last year, uh, he was what Christianity today called the dean of church consulting. He knew more about the movement of the church around the world and people movements and the growth of the church, the Christian church, than any person probably alive. Uh, He wrote, he authored 55 books or more. He edited over 40 books, and he wrote thousands of essays and articles that were published in a variety of periodicals. And so I had the privilege to uh, be in this class with about 18 other people for a Monday through a Friday, and I audited the class. And during that that week-long class, he made an observation that I didn't remember until much later. And he said that the current generation in America of those, say, about 30 years old and younger, uh, had not experienced what he referred to as a defining moment. Uh, which he defined as an event in America which brings everyone together. And we asked him whether Columbine, the shooting at Columbine High School in Colorado qualified. He said no, that was not on a national scale. So we referred back to such defining events in previous generations, the stock market crash of 1929, which was one of the factors that led to the Great Depression. Of course the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. For my generation, when I was eight years old, it was November 22, 1963, when John F., President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And Dr. Schaller said since that date in 1963, there had not been such a defining moment for our nation. Now, all that changed just literally within about three weeks of me being in that class. And 9-11, which we just refer back to now, 2001, which that became a defining event for all of us in the U.S. If, If the world did not change that day, and certainly our understanding of our perception of how the world viewed us changed that day. And it reawakened many of us in the church to be more committed to prayer, to world evangelism, to the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Um, I bought a copy of the Quran and I began to read it and to try to understand the roots of Islam. I became much more interested in reading about and supporting missions uh, in the Muslim world. And since opening in 2011, and I know many of you have been there, the 9-11 Memorial in downtown Manhattan, just since it's been opened less than five years, it has drawn more than 28 million visitors to it. Uh, so it is good to remember uh, events and not to ignore them, especially defining events. Uh, with those thoughts in mind, now let's turn to the scriptures. Let's move to the sermon. and We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Today we'll end chapter 1 and begin chapter 2. And I'll begin reading in verse 26. Hear God's word. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus and became to us, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Our Father, we come before you today not only in worship but now before your word and we remember how Christ said that we do not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from your mouth and so we come with hungry in some cases starving souls needing nourishment and we ask that you might provide that in Jesus name amen I'll be surprised if you are not familiar with what happened on August the 30th just less than two weeks ago in Tallahassee. And it's gone viral on the internet where some of the Florida State University football players went to Monford Middle School there in Tallahassee. And one of the wide receivers, Travis Rudolph, uh, who plays for FSU, chose to sit down with a sixth grader whose name is Bo Paskey. Um, Bo has a form of autism that uh, at this stage of life, renders him alone pretty much most of the time. His mother said that often at the end of the day she'll say, who did you eat with, and he'll say, well, I was just by myself. And so when Travis Rudolph decided, chose to sit with Bo Paskey, uh, one of the men working at the school took a picture and sent it to Bo's mom, and that went viral on the Internet. It's been followed up with, with Travis Rudolph presenting a Florida State jersey to Bo, Uh, Which would mean nothing to your pastor, but to to Bo Paskey it meant, no, I'm kidding, it meant meant the world. So it's a very moving scene that continues. What is it about choosing people, you know, choosing to sit with someone that may be alone, choosing to talk to someone you may not know? Here we have a pretty lengthy description of God's choice of us, of, of his people, those he calls to himself. It's very encouraging. In verse 26, I'll just kind of walk through the verses. Paul basically says, for consider the calling. Take a look at yourself, Corinthians. He says, according to God's choice, it's not according to worldly standards. That's the term he uses. Uh, Worldly standards. Worldliness in the Bible is the way of thinking that just leaves God out. That's what worldliness is. It leaves God out. And he says, God chooses not according to worldly standards. he says, there were not many of you who were wise. Uh, You know, you could look around the Corinthian church. You could look around this church. You don't see any C.S. Lewis's sitting out here or those that we would hold in awe of their understanding of the universe and their wisdom and philosophy and theology. He says, there are not many who were powerful. That is politically powerful, with, with influence. He says, not many of you were of noble birth. Uh, those of the upper classes, the aristocracy. And so by these three terms, uh, those who were not powerful or, or of noble birth or, or wise, he's basically covered everyone. And so he doesn't say there weren't any of you who were wise or powerful or of noble birth. We do know that in the New Testament times, there were some people who came from the highest ranks of society and became followers of Christ. We have some listed in the New Testament, such as Dionysius at the city of Athens. We have Sergius Paulus on the island of Crete. We have these noble ladies who are mentioned in Thessalonica and Berea. Um, And so we have some... But by and large, it was true then, and it remains true today, that the the great mass of Christians typically are simple and what we would call humble or lowly folk, normal people. That's still true. Look around. Well, don't look around. I mean, you get the idea. I mean, there's not real. I mean, we're just running the mill, by and large. And that's what Paul is saying. Now, is he intending to insult them? No, that's not the purpose at all. Uh, he's pointing out God's God's sovereign plan. Verse 27, he says, But God did choose the foolish in order to shame the wise. Those who seem foolish uh, in order to shame how the world looks at wisdom. He chose the weak. He goes on to shame the strong. He chose the lowly and despised. Those that didn't count, the non-existent people of this day. The church would have had plenty of slaves in it. The Roman Empire at that time, we think as much many as, possibly as high as 65% of the population were slaves. They would have been in the Corinthian church, too. And so, in the eyes of the world, they may have seemed non-existent. And he says, yet God chooses those who are foolish, wise, and lowly, um, he values things and people that the world does not. God's values are upside down from the world's values. You know, we talk about how the book of Revelation refers to in heaven that the streets will be of gold. And uh, some people use that and make the point that heaven's going to be such a luxurious place that even the streets will be made of gold. Well, if you understand more what it's saying, it's saying that those things we value so much in this world, like gold, will be used for pavement in heaven that we'll walk on. The point is, that's how little it will mean there compared to the way we think of it here. And so God's values, you could say, are upside down from the world. He chooses those things The world would always pick, let's pick the wisest person, let's pick the person that's most aristocratic, let's pick the most powerful person. And God says, I'll pick the foolish, and I'll pick the weak, and I'll pick the lowly and the despised. The gospel today is spreading at a very, very fast rate. I've mentioned recently about the spread of the gospel in Iraq and in Afghanistan. But primarily the growth of the church worldwide is in the southern hemisphere and in Asia. It's not in North America, and it's certainly not in in much of Europe. Uh, It's in the Southern Hemisphere, when you get into parts of Africa and South America and so forth. Now, why is that that you have to go out of your way, like I do, to find out about this? You have to know what to read and what journals and periodicals and where to look for that information. Why is it that we don't know more about that? It's because where God is doing his greatest work is in nations and places that don't benefit us economically or politically at all as the United States. And that's typically how God works. He moves among people that sometimes you might say are the underclass, those that aren't even recognized by others around them. Well, why does God work this way? Paul goes on in verses 28 and 29. To show that no man may boast in God's presence that he has gained his salvation by his own effort. He works this way so that none of us can boast. None of us can say, look how smart I was. Look how wise I was. Look how valuable I was to God that he chose me. Now, let me remind you, what was Paul's relationship to the Corinthians? If you remember, if you were here a few weeks ago when I gave you some introductory material, Paul went to the city of Corinth, which was a large, wealthy, growing city in the middle of Greece, the country of Greece, and he, he planted the church there. He led people to Christ, beginning with a man named Crispus, who was the head of the synagogue. There was this Jewish leader. And this man becomes a follower of Christ along with his whole family. And there are others that, that aren't named that became believers. Paul stayed there 18 months. During that time, he discipled these people. He helped them grow in Christ. He saw the church established. Then Paul left and went to the city of Ephesus, where he stayed for three years. While he's in the city of Ephesus, he writes this letter back to them. So by then, the church in Corinth was anywhere from, say, a year to four years old. So it hadn't been there a long time. I mean, this establishment of of believers. So Paul is writing back to them, and he says that the reason God works this way, the reason God does not choose the wise by and large, the wise and the powerful and so forth, is that no one may boast. Instead of boasting, verses 30 and 31 tell us that as redeemed people, we must realize that salvation is all of God's grace, that Christ is our redemption, the person by whom we are delivered from sin and hell. And so here's the key takeaway. If you're a Christian today here, you have nothing to boast about as to how that came to pass. God chose you when the world would not. And he redeemed you despite of who you are. We refer to this as the sovereignty of God. Now, let me put a big parenthesis in this sermon for about the next five minutes. And I just want to describe, what do we mean the sovereignty of God? I mean, I had to get a master's degree to learn to spell it. So what is the sovereignty of God? Well, essentially, sovereignty refers to a sovereign, a king, over a kingdom, over a realm, And when we refer to the sovereignty of God, we are referring to the fact that God is the supreme ruler over all of his creation. That's essentially what we mean by that term. Now, there are many biblical texts to support it. Let me just read a couple. Psalm 103 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. There's the picture of God being the king ruling over all that he's made. And then Revelation 19, at the end of the Bible, it says, On his robe and on his thigh he has his name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So the concept of the sovereignty of God expresses that the very nature of God is all-powerful and is able to accomplish his good pleasure, carrying out his decreed will, and to keep all of his promises. That's what we mean by that. Now, it's expressed also in a comprehensive plan or decree over all of world history. Ephesians 1, verse 11 says, Speaking of God, he works out everything with conformity, in conformity with the purpose of his will. So his sovereignty is exercised and displayed in history in the work of creation, in the work of providence... In the work of of redemption, in the sending of Christ. In Acts chapter 14, it tells us that he rules the destiny of men and nations. His providential rule is all comprehensive. Now let me read you a verse that some of you have never heard. It's from Isaiah. 700 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah And God speaking says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, we bristle often when we see verses like that. You'll not find those typically in our responsive readings in the back of our hymnals. Verses like that, God saying, I create disaster. Now, What it's saying is that God's over everything, but he's not the author of sin. And the truth of the sovereignty of of God is designed to bring comfort that we do not go through disasters alone, that God has not somehow blinked or turned his back or been called away, and then chaos ensued. When Job's wife understandably somewhat mocked him during their time of intense suffering. There they had bankruptcy, the loss of their children, the loss of health all at once. Some of us will experience tragedy at one time, of one type, but all these things hit them at one time, all sorts of things. He answers back to his wife, Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? So he didn't just say, God's sovereign over the good things. God's sovereign over the trouble in my life as well. God's sovereignty touches many areas of suffering and prayer and guidance and salvation. And it's specifically worked out in the doctrine referred to of unconditional election. What is that? Well, a very, very basic definition would be that before the foundation of the earth... God elected or chose some people to have eternal life. Now, typically, those who take issue with this approach will usually hold to election, but it's conditional. It's a conditional election. And that is that that God looked down the tube of time, and he saw this individual in 2016 and said, because Chip will receive my son as his savior therefore me seeing that i will choose him but that is a conditional election not unconditional where do we get the idea of an unconditional election well ephesians chapter 1 for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight matthew 22 jesus said many are invited but few are chosen and so it's, it's called unconditional that when God chose, he saw nothing in me or you as a Christ follower. He saw no conditions which were met in us, which prompted him to choose us. I like what the Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote. He said, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I would never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterward. I, I Preach it, Charles. I can, I can understand. I read that when I was in high school. I believe when this doctrine is properly understood, it is most humbling because we realize God chose me not based on anything he saw. And there's no room for boasting, as, as Paul says. That I was, as the scripture says, I was not... <clears throat> A, a sick person in need of, of, of a, re- a remedy I was a dead person in need of a resurrection it's a stimulating doctrine for diligence, it's a comforting and consoling doctrine <clears throat> when our disabled son was born I remember less than a week old standing next to an incubator in the University of Alabama in Birmingham and in the middle of the night and all I could think about was Romans 8 Those are the words that came back over and over. Romans 8, Romans 8. You may be thinking, well, I know some of Romans 8. What are you talking about? Well, let me read you the last five verses of Romans 8. You'll know the first verse, but sometimes we leave off the others. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Most of us have heard that verse. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And then Paul bursts forth in praise and says, What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So it moves from this principle... We know that God works all things for good to those who love him to this teaching on election and predestination and foreknowledge and so forth to this burst of praise like if God is for us, who can be against us? I still think the best explanation of this or expression of this was by John Blanchard, a British evangelist, in this pulpit. He said, if you should ask me, how it is possible that one day I shall stand glorified with my Lord, the answer is that I am justified. If you should ask me how it is possible that I should be justified, I would answer you that I was called. And if you ask me why I should be called, the answer is that I was predestined. And if you should ask me why I should be predestined, the answer is that he loved me. And if you were to ask me why he loved me, I have no answer. My words give way to worship. End of quote. So the goal of election is the praise and glory of God. That we've been chosen, it says in Ephesians 1, in order that we might be for the praise of his glory. And so that is the purpose of that. Now, briefly, in the last few moments, I'm just going to say a few words about verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2 and Hopefully, in two weeks, we'll come back to it in detail. I read it earlier, but Paul's recalling of how when he came to them, that when he came to them, when he went to Corinth, we read about in Acts chapter 18, and he preached the gospel, and there were people that were converted. He said, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. We know that Paul had a fabulous education, but he wasn't trained in rhetoric. He wasn't known, we know, from other parts of the New Testament. He was somewhat boring to listen to. Some people found what he said very complex and complicated. Uh, we know he wasn't much to look at. We have these phrases throughout the New Testament. He taught, His eyesight was bad. He had to have a, a secretary of sorts to write his letters that, that were sent out. And so here was, from a human standpoint, there apparently was nothing impressive about the apostle paul as far as to look at it and he says when i came it wasn't with lofty speech or wisdom he didn't woo them with his oratorical skills in fact he said i decided to know nothing among you except jesus christ and him crucified his message was the cross his message was that christ came to receive uh to redeem sinners and how did he deliver that he said, in weakness, verse, this is in verse 3, in fear and in much trembling. He was scared to death. He was bold, obviously, to go into dangerous situations as a missionary. But he wasn't without fear and trembling and weakness. And what happened? The Spirit demonstrated The power of God, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. No one walked away after hearing the Apostle Paul and said, Boy, he sure did manipulate us with some external means, you know, with some kind of effects of some sort. No, it was just a simple gospel preached by a weak man, and yet the Holy Spirit used it. He came speaking in fear, and the results the Holy Spirit produced. Then verse 2, he said he focused, as I mentioned, on the cross. Now, there are lots of implications. It's not as though he didn't address other things. In fact, the whole book of 1 Corinthians, he's going to address a lot of issues. But it begins with the cross, with the cross of Christ and how we're made right with God, the simple gospel. The temptation today and and we see it happening around us, and I can tell you as a as a preacher and as a teacher, I, I'm strongly tempted in this. It's either to take away from it or to add to it. Either to take away from the simple gospel or to add something to it. To take away some truths like, well, let's just water over, <clears throat> let's just kind of do away with repentance. You know, that turning to Christ also involves turning from sin. We certainly want to do away facetiously with Christ being the only way to God uh, maybe we can not even talk about heaven or hell you know, let's just leave that out and in uh, and, and the, and the literal resurrection of Christ you know, that will be the first thing to have to go maybe he rose in the hearts of his followers but as far as physical resurrection so th- there's a desire to take away or to add to it you know, with some kind of legalistic way well, you can believe in Christ but then on top of that you need to do this and to do this and to do this So the temptation is either to take away or to add. Uh, I have an elder pastor brother, Frank Barker, that's preached here. Frank's retired now. A godly man who pastored for many years, and he told of a woman in their congregation that was very, very sick with cancer. And at that time, there were some new wonder drugs, and she was being given those, and the effect at least on the immediate, was that she was just sick as she could be, stayed nauseated all the time. And he was at the hospital one day, and he spoke to her doctor and said, isn't there some way to take the ingredient out of the medicine that makes her so nauseated? And the doctor said, yes, of course we could take that out. But he said, the thing is, that is the curative, that's what makes the medicine curative. If you take that out, it will have no curative power." So, so when we take the gospel and if we remove parts of it or if we add things to it, it loses its curative power of the Holy Spirit using it. So do you know Christ today? If you, if you put your trust in him as your redeemer, that recognize that there's nothing you can do, that I can do, that anyone can do to make yourself good enough or worthy enough or religious enough or to live by the golden rule enough to make yourself acceptable to God but that he, Christ, as a substitute, took upon himself the punishment for sin that was due to you and me, and he paid for that sin, and then he appeared to his disciples for over 40 days, one time more than 500 people, and the last command he gave them was to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father where right now he intercedes. And he's waiting till that time when he will take us who are in him to be with him forever. That can happen in an instant. Maybe today is your day that God has brought you here for this very purpose, that today you will trust in Christ as your Redeemer. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that we are here because those original disciples followed that great commission and they took the gospel out from Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. We pray that we would know the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives, that you would work through and in us, not through human manipulation or trickery or that we're persuaded by somebody's oratorical skills or gifts and abilities or their intellect, That your Holy Spirit works through the simple presentation of the work of Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.